is shaking everybody it is a new episode of the wind up podcast i am your host mike of mtga wines thank you for joining us again this week for another awesome episode this week we are getting into something that is used throughout the wine industry it's talked about all the time and i want to shed a little bit more information and insight into this particular aspect of the wine making process and that is barrel aging we talked a little bit about tasting through barrel samples and how they can be kind of treacherous that you're basically tasting an incomplete product and that these barrels are just slowly helping you get this juice and this wine you know going in the direction that you want it to go but in order to do all that there's a lot of stuff that you have to take into consideration so we're going to attack this as if we are starting a variety with a variety and we're trying to build a barrel program this will be very akin to what i did in starting in the wine industry and making my own wines this is a lot of what many folks will do and we'll get into kind of how that evolves and changes as the year goes on. Once you kind of have your barrel selection ready and dialed in, you're pretty much good to go with a handful of exceptions. But a lot of those are kind of few and far between. But it's always nice to be prepared. So let's pretend for a second that we're starting a wine business. And we're in Napa. So let's say we're making Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, right? Real original. So... We're gonna make some Napa Cap. And we know that it's a big, hearty red wine. We know it's gonna have a lot of structure. We know there's gonna be some fruit characteristics involved. Uh, if you're making Napa Cab these days, it's probably gonna be in that 14 and a half to 15 and a half range, wink, wink, nudge, nudge on the label. And you're gonna to wanna to find some barrels to spice that thing up a little bit, to help meld into that wine. How do you do that when you don't even know necessarily what fruit you're going to use? It's a brand new vineyard. You've never used this fruit before. How do you know what barrel is going to be best for you? And realistically, it's a process of elimination. It's kind of like adding salt or pepper or like a little bit of spice to a dish. So you kind of know the things that'll work almost no matter what. Maybe it's not perfect, but at least it's a starting point. And from there, you can iterate. And the great thing about getting started, whether you're a brand new wine production or you're just adding a new wine to your lineup, is that you typically have that path to walk down. You know that there are a handful of certain barrels that tend to be pretty good at what they do. This is why we pay a lot of money for high quality barrels. You know, the barrel, I mean, just on that note, I mean, the barrels are typically the second biggest cost center of a wine business because they cost anywhere from six, eight hundred, nine hundred, twelve hundred, eighteen hundred dollars per barrel. So if you need a hundred new barrels, do the math, right? And from there, you've got to try and figure out, all right, what barrels do I actually need? So what happens typically is that most of these barrels, whether you're working with American oak, French oak, Sylvanian, Hungarian oak, whether you're using stainless steel, whatever, maybe you're using clay amphoras, uh, concrete, you know, any of these aging things, they all have companies that make them and brokers or distributors that sell them. 
So for your oak barrels or your acacia barrels in some situations, uh, you are going to typically be working with a broker in some way, shape or form. Uh, I have a basic, just a quick Rolodex of probably six or eight different barrel producers that I've worked with over the years. If I'm working with something new and different, or maybe I just want to try something new and different, I can give any one of them a shout knowing kind of the direction that their barrels lean and see if it's going to work out for our program. There are a handful of barrel producers that I've been working with the entire time I've been making wine. There are a couple that are a little bit newer to the game. I kind of have my staples that I really, really love for our program, but that's taken about 14 years, maybe, maybe closer to 10 or 12, to really dial in. But even now in year 14, there are still barrels that I'm experimenting with. So to get to this point, you have to talk to those distributors and those brokers of those barrels. And the good news is, is that there's probably somebody relatively nearby if you're making wine in a wine industry somewhere, whether it's here in California, Oregon, the Finger Lakes, abroad, wherever it may be, there's probably going to be someone with these barrels in their cellar. And this is one of the beautiful things about the wine industry, and this is something that I've experienced firsthand, is that if you're trying to figure out kind of what barrels you want to use for your program, it's not that hard to get in touch with your colleagues, go to their cellars, and taste through what barrels they're using and see if it might be applicable to what you're doing, right? Even the barrel producers themselves or these brokers will have samples that are typically pretty readily available, so you can taste how that barrel impacts a wine specifically. Uh, they'll have, you know, that wine in a neutral container. That way you can kind of taste it on its own without any influence from those barrels. And then they'll have a, a sample of that from a brand new barrel as well. So you can get a really good idea of how those characteristics really meld into a wine. So using this example of starting, you know, a Napa Valley Cabernet program, you're going to know, you know, what vineyard you're using, what appellation it's coming from, whether it's coming from the valley floor, maybe one of the hillsides. And for the sake of, you know, argument, let's say that we're using Howe Mountain. I've had the pleasure of working with a little bit of Howe Mountain fruit, and it's something that has a very specific style. It's a little bit more structured. It tends to be really, really intense, very tannic. If you go down to the bottom of that hill, closer to St. Helena, those wines tend to be a little bit more fruit-driven. They tend to be a little bit more plush, and so on and so forth. And in any wine-growing region, and those grapes are from certain sections of whether it's Napa or the Willamette Valley or anywhere in the world, certain plots are going to taste a little bit different, right? So you have to find barrels that kind of lean into that. So it's just doing your due diligence. It's, hey, let me try some barrel samples. Let me figure out what barrels I think might work based on where I'm getting my fruit from and what typically comes from that area. So that is basically step one. That is how you really kind of get into making wine and introducing a barrel program to your wine program. It's a little bit of trial and error you have a pretty good guesstimate that the barrels you've sampled, where you're making your wine from, that they're going to jive pretty well. And again, because you're buying typically these high-end barrels, you're not using oak chips, you're not using adjuncts, you're not trying to flavor your wine using other methods, you're using these really nice handcrafted barrels, they're not going to make a bad wine typically. 
there might be certain things that you don't necessarily prefer. There might be certain things that you want to tweak or work on, and that becomes the evolution of your house style and what your barrel program eventually evolves into. So for us, for example, when we started making Napa Valley Cabernet in 2017, I had a pretty good idea of what barrels I wanted to use. There are a handful of producers that I've been working with at that point. Uh, it was a, mostly a combination of Sylvan, Gamba, as well as Boots. Uh, those were really kind of the three mainstays. We've used a little bit of Alain Fouquet. Uh, we've used, you know, uh, there's a couple others uh, that have fallen a little bit by the wayside at, at this point in time. But even between those four producers, there are probably two or three barrels from each of them that I use. So there's going to be at least let's say six or eight different barrels that I use across just those four barrel makers. So when you're adding on a new wine or you're starting a new wine program, the world is really your oyster. You know that you have a pretty good idea of where that wine is going to end up, how that barrel is going to integrate into things, and you just pull the trigger and you run with it. This is something that early on in, in our wine program, we couldn't afford to do any R&D. So buying these new barrels was kind of a big leap of faith. We had to say, all right, this is going to be our starting point. And then every year from here on out, we're going to try to be able to afford more new barrels so that if we're not super keen on where this barrel's at, we can adjust that, maybe buy a different barrel from that same producer or use a different cooperage entirely. We can make those adjustments as we go in years to come. Now, I think there's a common misconception about barrel aging in that if there's a certain barrel that you're using and it ends up not integrating the way you want and maybe the wine's not exactly what you want that we would discard that wine or we wouldn't be able to use it which is simply not the case even if there's a barrel that you're like man you know it was a good try but it didn't really do what i wanted it to do even if it's just not quite there us winemakers are pretty damn good at repurposing that wine and finding ways to blend that lot into the rest of our wines so that it is not a defining characteristic. It adds just that little bit of something extra, maybe a little bit of X factor. And maybe that's something you need. Maybe a particular barrel is just really, it's really feisty. It creates a lot of tension in the wine. Tension is one of my favorite things to describe uh, new barrels and certain barrels that we use because it's almost like the wine is like so close. It's, it's like a cliffhanger. It's so close to being great, but it just needs a little something. That new barrel is not gonna do it by itself. It needs other lots to be blended with it. So even though that one barrel maybe isn't perfect, you've got a whole bunch of other stuff in your back pocket that you can use to enhance that wine and make it better. Because remember, these barrels that we're using are in essence our spice rack. We're pulling a little bit from all of them to create our wines. Unless you're making, say, like a single barrel lot, right? Where you're just like, all right, we're bottling up this barrel by itself. That's obviously the exception. But very typically, you're using quite a few barrels to create a wine. And you want all these different flavors. You want all these different aromas and all these different characteristics to come together. So even if you have that barrel that you're not typically a huge fan of, on its own, you can still find ways to repurpose that one. You don't have to dump it down the drain. You don't have to sell it to somebody else. There are great things that you can do with that wine to really enhance your program, even though you might not be super happy with where that barrel is on its own. 
A great example for this in our program is Darnajou. Uh, these barrels are actually highly sought after. They're allocated, typically, um, hard to come by-ish. And they're a, a barrels that I've used a couple of times and, and worked with and tasted you know, other folks that have used them as well. And that barrel on its own, I'm not a huge fan of. It needs a little something. It creates great flavor and great complexity, but I would never use a Darnajou barrel for a single barrel bottling. Uh, I would use it as a component for other things. That's really a huge consideration. So you have to have this kind of game of chess in the back of your head of, hey, we don't need all of every single barrel to be perfect because we're gonna use many of these barrels for all these wines to come together. All right, so we have kind of those, let's say, let's use those four cooperages as an example as we're getting this Cabernet program up and running. So we mentioned uh, Sylvain, Gamba, we have Alain Fouquet, and we have Boots. Uh, number one, I wouldn't use Boots. Uh, for that, it's a light, very lightly toasted barrel. Frankly, uh, those barrels are great once they're once or once or once and twice used. I'm a huge fan of them for storage for other wines as time goes on. But for Cabernet, if we're going to use a brand new barrel, I'm probably going to omit that one. We're going to scrap that one right off the back. We'll use that for other stuff. Gamba, I really, really enjoy. But I find that for me personally, I really enjoy it with more fruit forward wines. It really integrates well into things like Merlot. It does really, really well uh, with that in our own program. And it's something that I enjoy specifically. It can be a little bit heavy handed with some of their cuts. So it's something that you just have to kind of be on the ball with to make sure that those wines don't absorb that too, too fast and they don't get too woody. Just my own personal experience with them. The Alain Fouquet is actually like my line it up to knock it down with Cabernet. I love using that barrel for Cabernet. Uh, we use it both uh, for our red blend as well as our Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, I really love how those barrels integrate into Cabernet. So those were the front runners initially for us. And then Sylvain tends to be kind of be my Swiss army knife. Uh, we use that for Cab Franc. We've used it for Merlot in the past. Uh, we've used it for Cabernet Sauvignon as well. That really tends to be this kind of ace up my sleeve where if I'm if I need the wine to have a little something extra Sylvain's just a great just a barrel or two a year just a little something just a little push I wouldn't say that it's a it is a mainstay in our program but it's not a defining cooperage it's not something that we buy a lot of every year it's just a couple of barrels to give some of our wine just that little bit of extra edge and there are a couple others like Darnajou, like Garnets, and, and things that we've used as well that are kind of those R&D departments. Like, let's see if this will work and if these wines will really come together with these other barrels that we're trying to utilize. So now, once you have your barrels picked out, the waiting game begins. And this is, I do want to touch on that barrel tasting conversation that we had a couple months ago because this is where it's really easy to be impatient and get frustrated and feel as though things aren't happening as fast or as good as they should be. In my experience, it takes that six to eight month range for barrels to really start to integrate into the wine and for that wine to really start to integrate with those barrel characteristics. If you're tasting, if you put that wine into a brand new barrel and you taste it two months later, three months later, four months later, yeah, it's picking up some of the oaky characteristics, but it's just not there yet. It takes time. 
you really have to be patient. This is something I preach for folks that I consult with and some private labels that I've done. It's like, hey, it's okay to just be like, it's not ready yet. It's okay to say that. And it's okay to take a step back and be like, I'll be back in a few months. We'll try it again and we'll see how it's coming along. Because it's it's so easy to be like, oh, it's not doing what I want really early. Because it takes, this is one of those beautiful things about winemaking is you have to, at a certain point, be patient. Great wine comes with patience. It cannot be manufactured and it cannot be expedited. It takes time and finesse. And that's what these barrels do really, really well if you give them the chance and the opportunity. This is probably the A number one biggest challenge when it comes to starting a wine program, excuse me, and iterating within it, is that you kind of want to see those results instantly. You want to say, you want to be able to make those leaps and bounds at a fairly quick pace, right? You want to see the results and you just can't do that overnight with wine. It takes that time. And it's something that I, I preach so much uh, to uh, our, our clients and, and it's something that we talk about within the industry when it comes to barrel tasting and samples and selling futures and things of that nature is that you're getting a snapshot of a wine that is not ready yet. And you have to understand that this is probably going to change. It'll be very similar. It's not going to be completely different. It's not going to be the yin to the yang, but it is going to shift and it's going to adjust because we have to have some creative license to create the best wine that we can. Now, when it comes to, let's say, that Napa Cabernet that we're aging, you want something that's kind of bigger and bolder. You also have to decide on toasting levels. Because barrels, you know, as many of you probably know, are charred on the inside to a certain degree. I mentioned that Boots barrel, it's it's a very light toasting. It's not something that's really going to stand up to Cabernet, in my opinion. That's not a barrel I would ever use for Cabernet Sauvignon. I'm sure there's someone out there that does. I would love to taste it out of barrel just to see what it does. Uh, But that's not, that wouldn't be something that I would lean towards. I love using those medium and medium plus barrels for Cabernet Sauvignon because it provides a little bit more of those vanillas, those butterscotches, those chocolates, uh, those nice toasted kind of characteristics, and it integrates really, really well into your big wines. So based on what you're trying to make, you need to take that into consideration as well. And this is one of the beautiful things about working with some of these barrel producers and these brokers that I was talking about is that you can basically get your barrels made to order. Uh, they Whatever you need, they can knock out for you. They typically have a good stock of all of them. This is why we do order our barrels, though, typically in like March or April. That way they can be built or and produced and get to us by the time harvest rolls around. In fact, the, one of the main reasons I wanted to dive into our barrel selection in this episode is because our barrel deliveries are starting right now in the middle of July for the upcoming harvest. So all this is very, very fresh of mind. And wouldn't you know it, we're not having as many supply chain issues. So things are being delivered on time. It's outstanding. Anyway, sidebar, a little bit of a tangent. But within those toasting levels, you're going to want to look for slightly different characteristics as well. And I actually even missed a big part of the barrel selection process, which is certain barrels, much like certain wines within a wine production, are aged in a lumber yard before those barrels are actually built. They call it the seasoning process. So certain 
pieces of wood are going to be aged in those lumber yards for a few months, maybe a few years. And depending on kind of what style of barrel you want, that's a whole nother consideration. Not only that, you have to try and figure out what forest or what kind of blend of forests you want. Uh, very similar to, let's say, again, Cabernet Sauvignon grown in California. It's very different than Cabernet Sauvignon grown in France. There are some similarities to kind of tie the two together, but realistically, if you're making a classic Napa wine versus a classic Bordeaux wine, you're going to have two very different styles that you're working with. And barrel makers are the same way. Certain barrel makers might be using the same forest that another barrel maker is, but you're going to have a completely different style of barrel that you're working with based on their aging and seasoning techniques, based on how they craft those barrels, based on how they toast those barrels. Do they bend the staves using water or steam? There's all kinds of crazy options. And it's fascinating because you can get so many cool, different, you know, characteristics and things out of these barrels based on how you utilize them. In fact, one of my next, I'm trying to make it happen. I'll see if we can, because uh, I've never been a huge fan of American oak in particular. It tends to be a little bit too harsh. Uh, typically, American oak is a little bit wider grain, so it has more surface area and as a result, more impact on the wine. When you're making wines that are a little bit more restrained, a little bit softer, they can be a little bit overbearing. But utilizing that uh, kind of a not too much of a heavy toast and then also that steam or water bending helps as I understand it's kind of soften up some of the tannins and things and uh, flavor that you get from some of those American oak barrels so it's not too crazy um, it actually tones them down I've done a few barrel trials uh, with those uh, from our uh, from a good friend uh, that I grew up with actually uh, who works for one of these barrel producers and it's been really interesting kind of diving into American oak and seeing what the possible possibilities might be uh, for our programs moving forward. So there's always that, again, kind of something new and different to explore when it comes to barrels. So it's, it's fascinating because you can pick the producer, how that, in essence, how that barrel is made and get it delivered to your front door to use it as you see fit. And then you have to have that patience kick in to see how it actually ends up. Now this is where barrel tasting as those wines age can be really, really key because you start to understand how those barrels integrate. You start to understand what characteristics are really highlighted from those barrels and what the wine absorbs as time goes on. And from there, you can really start to decide, hey, is this the direction we want our house style to go? Is this where we want our, is this the realm that we want our wines to play in? But that comes, of course, months down the line. Now, the question we get regularly is like, okay, if a barrel is just really not doing well, can you change it? And the answer is yes, we can. We can move the wine out of that barrel, move it into another barrel and try and mitigate what's happening. But as I mentioned, even if it's a barrel that you're not particularly keen on, there are still plenty of ways to blend that back into your program and utilize it for other things rather than just bottling on its own. Remember that if you're if you've got 40 barrels in the cellar, that's your spice rack you're working with. You're not bottling all those barrels individually. You're going to be blending them together in some way, shape, or form. You look at our Merlot program. We typically have maybe eight, on average, barrels of Merlot in the cellar. That means that you know we're going to cut one from the herd for our single barrel Merlot, and then we're going to have 
six or seven others that are all going to be blended together to make our Napa Valley Merlot. So I need those six or seven to have all these fun, different, unique characteristics, which is why we use a lot of different types of barrels, uh, whether they're new, used, and then also from different producers and different production styles. That way we have these really cool kind of eclectic and fun flavors and characteristics that are elicited in the wine. So as that aging process is going on, you're tasting, you're evaluating, you're making notes. Some of you have probably seen me in my little black notebook, like just it's a couple of lines, like what I think of these barrels and things of that nature. And you just, you're just kind of keeping tabs on things. And as time goes on, and by time I mean years and vintages, you slowly start to dial those things in. And it becomes a little bit more finite. And you kind of understand that, okay, I know what works for these vineyards. I know what works for these wines. And you have kind of like your work order. You know what you need to do to line it up to knock it down, right? Here's kind of the the catch. And this is very similar to like if a winery sells or if a winemaker leaves and someone else takes over the program, that if that happens to a cooperage, there might be some stylistic changes. This is another reason why we use quite a few cooperages, that if stylistically something kind of changes within the barrel program that they're producing, we can say, okay, well, maybe that doesn't fit our program anymore. Let's use these other things to try and keep it consistent. And then we got to find something else to add into that to kind of supplement what we're doing. Or maybe it's just your own style changes a little bit. You learn the vineyard that you're working with a little bit better. You farm it a little bit better. You're dialing in your own wine style a little bit more every year. And it goes from, you know what? That Sylvan barrel was working really good for the Merlot for a few years. But now, you know what? Those Gamba barrels just hit it the right way. We're still going to use those Sylvan barrels for other things. But right now, we're using Gamba. Like We're going to really use that as kind of the linchpin that holds that Merlot program together. And you start making some of those executive decisions to make sure that, hey, stylistically, these wines are going to be what they are year in and year out. And those barrels play a huge role in making sure that you are maintaining that house style and that consistency. Even if you change vineyards in some situations, if you happen to have a vineyard change, that barrel program can help keep that consistency. That fruit's going to be a little bit different. Those flavors might be a little bit different, but the barrels can play such a heavy role that as long as they integrate well and you're still getting similar characteristics and it still tastes good with that wine, you can kind of bridge the gap between vineyard changes, something that has happened to us a couple of times between uh, our Cabernet Franc vineyard and something that we're going through with our Merlot vineyard right now. And it's something that we have to kind of adapt and overcome with. But again, this is why we have that Rolodex of different barrel producers that way, when that happens, or if that happens, you can just roll with the punches and continue moving forward and making the great wines that you're known for. Now, this is where it can get a little bit more complicated. I feel like this is a little overwhelming because I've just kind of dove right into the deep end of aging and barrel decisions and things of that nature. So I hope you're bearing with me a little bit because it's going to get a little bit more complicated. And this is where I have truthfully kind of the most fun when it comes to our barrel aging program. Because right now we're talking about buying brand new barrels for your wine project, right? And this was, and some of you may agree with me, some of you may not, but one of my big pet peeves about some wine productions is the focus on, hey, we have to use 100% new oak. 
100% new oak is just how we do things. I'm like, number one, that's expensive as shit. Number two, doesn't really do what you want it to do. And for some people, it absolutely does. I mean, you look at certain wine productions and how big and bold those wines are. They need big, bold flavors from new barrels to really stand up to those wines. It integrates well. They don't taste woody. Uh, they don't taste overbearing, and it works. There's that balance that we talk about so much when we're producing wine. There are other producers that just throw new oak at it because they can. And there is, and I don't want to try, and I don't want to demean those winemakers too much, but, you know, new oak can be used to mask a lot of mistakes and a lot of little things that are maybe not super awesome about a wine. You kind of lose, in my opinion, a little bit of finesse or you can potentially you lose a little bit of finesse if you're using just 100% new oak for the sake of using 100% new oak. If your wine actually needs it, that's a different story. But if you're just using it because you heard 100% new oak is the best thing ever, and that's just the barometer you have, your barometer's off. Sometimes you need some used barrels. Sometimes you need some stainless steel and other things to really help dial in your program. And that's what we'll get into next. And this is maybe an unpopular opinion, but I'm going to be honest. I'll be honest with you all. I don't like using new barrels that much. I really don't. I like, I have to use new barrels because I need to get to barrels that have been used once or twice. And to be very, very honest, I find that personally for the style of wine that I make, for example, that a barrel that's been used once or twice before really does a lot better for our style than a brand new barrel. Now, in order to get barrels that are once or twice used and the barrels that I want that are once or twice used, I have to start with the new ones. You got to you gotta pay the piper a little bit. So a big part of our wine production evolved into, hey, we need these once used barrels. What are we going to use these new barrels for? So we started making other wines within the program that would warrant 100% new oak in them or a fair share of new oak in them things like our single barrel merlot things like our red blend things like our napa cab that you know really are wines that need some new oak to kind of level them up make them a little richer make them a little bit more complex because once those barrels have been used now i get to play my chess game the following year which i love doing so i'm going to try and break it down for you a little bit for our Merlot specifically, we use primarily those Gamba barrels when they're brand new. I don't really use a lot of other cooperages, maybe Sylvain every once in a while. I really love how Gamba integrates into our Merlot. Once I'm done using those new Gamba barrels for our Merlot, the next year, once they've been used once, we use it for our Cabernet Sauvignon. For our Cabernet Franc, I really love Sylvain. We've been using Sylvan and actually a, a different cut from Gamba uh, as well for our Cabernet Franc. Once we're done using those barrels for that wine the first time, the second time it's used, when they've been used once, it'll go into a combination of typically our Merlot as well as our Cabernet Sauvignon. For our Cabernet Sauvignon, we're using a combination of Sylvain, we're using a little bit of Darnajou, and we're using some uh, Alain Fouquet. 
across those three cooperages, once they've been used for our Cabernet once, we put them back into our Merlot and our Cabernet Franc program. So everything just kind of rotates through the entire cellar in, in, in a calendar year. From the time those new barrels are used to the time we're emptying new bar those barrels after they've been used once and putting them back into the program, they're going into completely different wines. We do not, I, do, I hardly use the same barrel twice for the same wine. That rarely happens. And the reason that I do that, and this might be because those those barrels, once they've been used already, you're not getting like the huge brunt of all the flavors and characteristics from those from those barrels anymore. You're just getting a little bit more subtlety out of them. But for me personally, it helps, I think, craft a common thread across your entire program because you want all your wines to be unique and different and interesting. But if you flip flop those barrels within your program, now you're building a little bit of a common thread where, yeah, the defining characteristic of our Napa Cabernet isn't Gamba, but it is for our Merlot. And those flavors are really good in the Merlot. And once those barrels have been used once, they're really good in the Cabernet. And now you have a common thread crossing across those two wines where if you taste our Merlot and you taste our Cabernet, yeah, they're very different wines, but now there's at least something, there's a string holding them together. The Cabernet Franc would be the same thing, right? And that's really how I view utilizing barrels that have been used once or twice, is that one, they're not gonna have as much of a heavy impact, which I appreciate. I don't want our wines to be too woody and overbearing. I prefer a little bit of finesse and a little bit more restraint in our winemaking. And with that, I wanna make sure that we're very diligent about integrating those oak characteristics the right way so that not only do the wines that we're using new barrels for are really, really yummy, but once we're done using those barrels for that wine, that they can be repurposed and utilized in something that is going to enhance that other wine and create a common thread across our entire program. The once used barrels are my favorite barrels to use. They're some of my favorite wines. They're never the reserve wines or the single barrel wines though. They're not like the cream of the crop, which might sound kind of weird. Because you would automatically think, you know, the cream of the crop is, oh, those are your favorite wines. Those are going to be the things you strive to make every year. And you're not wrong in that regard. Because if we're making our Grand Cast Cabernet or any of our, our Cab Franc or our single barrel wines, I want those to be outrageously good and tasty. Like they need to be. But the wines that really get me going and that I'm really proud of are those wines that have a little bit more finesse. They're things like our Pinot Gris. They're things like our Napa Valley Merlot. They're the they're things like our Red Blend. They are the things that I wouldn't say fall through the cracks. You know, that's that's the wrong term to use. But they're not the they're not the go big or go home wines. They're kind of the oddballs. But many of you know by this point, I'm very much an oddball. So that probably checks out, right? <laughs> I do things a lot differently than a lot a lot of people, and it turns out that uh, my barrel program is not necessarily that outside of the box, but the way I view it and, and the wines that I truly am proud of is, are some of the other ones. It's not what you would expect necessarily, but that's because I love the subtlety of those once used barrels. They do not get nearly, nearly enough credit that they do in the cellar. New Oak is fine. It's, it's fine for what it is. 
it integrates well into the wines that we use it for, but, but I use new barrels so I can get to the barrels that have been used once or twice before. That's probably a little bit bass backwards for most wine producers just because of the prominence of new barrels and using them so, so much, especially in a place like Napa. But I don't think that 100% new oak is the best option 100% of the time. It's gonna depend stylistically on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to make the biggest, baddest Napa Cabernet you can, you're probably gonna lean pretty heavily on new, new oak in some way, shape or form, whether it's French, American or something else, you're gonna be relying a lot on it. If you're going for a little bit more restraint and a little bit more subtlety, you're probably not going to use 100% new barrels. You're probably going to find some in-between that you want to use. And now, once you have that program in place, you know what barrels you're using when they're new, you know where those go after they've been used and how that kind of circulates throughout your program, now the real fun begins. This is the next best thing, and that's the research and development people. That's when you finally have... It took so long to get to this point. And it takes a long time. Unless you have Boku Bucks, it takes a long time to get to this point. If you have if you have a good chunk of change laying around and you can afford to buy some extra barrels and, and do some R&D right out of the gate, more power to you because that's so key. It's so important. And that's where we're at as a wine program. It's where a lot of programs put a lot of effort is every year I probably buy, and many, many programs are buy, different barrels that they've never used before. Maybe they're from some of the same cooperages and barrel makers that they've used in the past. Maybe they're not. Maybe it's a completely different barrel producer that you're like, you know what? I've heard good things about this. Let's put some of our Cabernet into it and see what happens. And now you have that R&D project. There are multiple barrels that we have for our Cabernet that are going through that right now. Uh, this next year, we're actually going back and putting a little bit more focus in our white wine program. There are going to be some new barrels that we use for that that we've never used before just to see if it's something that would really enhance our white wine program. Because that's what really helps level up a wine production when it comes to your barrel aging and storage before you bottle. It's that tinkering. It's not necessarily a huge change, but you're just pulling another spice off the spice rack and giving it a little dash and saying, all right, let's see what this tastes like once this integrates. And that is... That's where, personally, I think a lot of winemakers kind of are like kids in a candy shop. You have a smorgasbord of options in front of you when it comes to what barrels you want to buy and how you want to integrate them into your program. We talked about all the different options there are when it comes to buying certain barrels from certain cooperages and different cooperages. There's so many options. There's, there's too many, to be honest. But too many is a good thing because there's always something new and different to try and there's always something new and different to iterate on to try to enhance your program not change it not overhaul it not turn your wine into something that it hasn't been but to just give it that little dash just that little you know what what was it was it emerald that used to do the bam just that little bam just a little something just to you know give it that little bit of x factor that could take your wine from a 10 to an 11. Like this wine goes up to 11, right? 
That's what tinkering can do with your barrel program. But it takes starting at that first moment of saying, hey, what are we making? What do we think is going to work with this? Okay, now we've been working with that. What else could work? Or maybe this isn't right where we want it. Maybe we need to try some new things. And you continue to iterate. You continue to iterate. And every year, it's it's probably a cliche at this point, but every year you just try and get better. You try, I mean, every day. Every day you wake up and you try and do something better than what you did the day before. It's, it's a mentality that... Uh, I was taught in the wine industry specifically. It's something that applies to so many other industries. And it was a, it was a guy uh, that I worked with out at Con Valley uh, some time ago, a cellar master who was out there for quite a long time. And it was the first thing he told me. is like, I don't care if you come out here and have the worst day as long as you do one thing better than you did yesterday. It could be coiling the hose more efficiently. It could be stacking barrels more efficiently. It could be parking the ATV more efficiently. It could be blending and racking and bottling more efficiently. It could be something super, super small and what you feel is insignificant, or it could be the big stuff. And the barrels are kind of a little bit of both, right? They're a huge cost center. They impact the wine heavily, but they can provide just that little dash, just that little thing that makes that wine far greater than the sum of its parts. Barrel aging and the options that we have within the winemaking community are outstanding. This is one of the many, many reasons why there are so many different wines out there, why there are so many unique wines out there. And it's something that is so important to what we do. And there's so many little things to take into consideration. And it's stuff that we are checking, double checking throughout the year as a wine is aging or the years that a wine is aging to make sure that we're getting that blend or that one barrel right where we want it so that we can feel as though we got through that vintage and we did something a little bit better than we did the vintage prior. That is barrel aging, my friends. It's the best. It's an outrageous test of your patience, but it's such a good time. All right. We got to talk about the wine of the week, y'all. This one, I'm so happy that this is the wine of the week because I spent, too, I thought I spent too much money on this wine. Uh, this is something that we did uh, last July, July of 2022. Uh, something that we're going to be doing again in 2025. We don't have the dates just yet, but we'll be sure to announce it is we went on a wine cruise with a bunch of our club members and clients, uh, as well as a couple of our really good friends, David and Suzanne Tate of Tate Wines. I had an amazing time. It was hot, 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 hot in the Mediterranean last July, but well worth it because we ended up at this little place. I'm going to see if my camera can pick it up for those that are watching. Uh, if you're not, I'll, of course, tell you what it is. There's also going to be a link to the producer and all that good stuff down below uh, in the description. But the wine of the week, it's the... Cantonera, Etna, D-O-C, Sicilian, red wine. It's their Reserva 2016. Uh, I am a huge sucker. I'm going to mess up the name of probably the blend or the designation. My Italian, as many of you know, just like my French, is terrible. Uh, but here we go. This is the Contrado Zotto Rinotto. That was probably not close, but here we go. I'll make sure it's all in the description so you can just read it. And if you speak Italian, you can correct me. Have at it. Uh, 
Uh, so this is their Reserva. This is something they actually make. Uh, we had a bottle of uh, their white wine, their Bianco, uh, last night, which they produced like 44,000 bottles of. So, you know, a little bit less than like 4,000 cases and change, right? That sounds right. Um, so they're not like the biggest producer, but they make a decent chunk of wine. Uh, they are actually, there's some of their wines are imported into the U.S. Uh, this one we bought when we were there. Um, so I don't know if this one actually makes it in the U.S., but it's worth trying to find if you can, uh, knowing that some of their wines do make it across the pond uh, to us. Uh, typically, I love Sicilian wines because they're just typically like around like 25 to 35 bucks and or less, and they're just delicious. Uh, they're, I mean, they range from really bright, minerally crisp white wines to these big rough and tumble reds. And this is one of the big rough and tumble ones. I might have been a little bit overserved that day and just having the best time with Mount Etna smoking in the background. Uh, well, it's not smoking, steaming technically. They corrected us on that. Um, but this was one of those wines where it's like, oh, it's so damn good. We got to get a couple bottles of that. And then I realized that it wasn't the, you know, 25 or 35 euro. It was the 80 euro bottle. And it was pricier than I thought it was going to be. But I was like, it's too late. It was too good. We're just buying it. Uh, so we opened up a bottle of it with a group of friends uh, for a tasting of Sicilian wines. And this was... I mean, all the wines were fantastic. There was one or two that might have been a little bit funky, but still fine. This was, I was so happy that we were able to share it with this group of friends. And it was something that uh, was just tasting so, so well. Um, so highly recommend checking out uh, Contanera. Uh, if you can find this uh, Reserva, I mean, please do. It's worth the little bit of extra coin, believe me. But even if you find some of their more approachable price point stuff, you're not going to be let down. This is the wine of the week. In fact, we left basically like a glass and a half in there just to see if it'd be better the next day. So I'm logging off right now and I'm going to go drink this. If you're watching this on Wednesday morning, I recorded this on Tuesday night, so I'm not starting my day like that. So calm down. I'm not that crazy. Thank you again so much for tuning in. It's been a blast, as always. Uh, be sure to like, be sure to subscribe, share the podcast, keep sharing the podcast with your friends, uh, submit your questions. We have our monthly Q&A coming up next week. Uh, if you have not texted me your questions or emailed them to me or submitted them in the comment section, please make sure that you do uh, so that I can loop them into our ongoing Q&A sessions that we do at the end of every month. So cheers, have an awesome rest of the week. We'll see you next week for the July Q&A session.